Welcome to the self-love revolution. I'm Ashley, a mental health therapist and self-love coach, and I'm here to simplify self-love and share how it's possible for any woman. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I have Katie here with me. She's the director of the Omni Eating Disorder Clinic in Omaha, and we're going to talk about eating disorders today. So welcome, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. So like you said, I'm director of Omni's Eating Disorder Clinic. I'm a licensed mental health therapist by training, and I've been at Omni now almost seven years, and I've been at the clinic for about six and a half years. My job there really is to provide clinical oversight for the clinic. So I um, hire on, train, supervise staff and interns. I develop and implement new policies. I work pretty closely with our billing department in terms of getting authorizations and things like that. I manage a small caseload. I kind of do a little bit of everything there. Yeah. Sounds like a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) What like led you to want to work with eating disorders? So I kind of got into the eating disorder field by happenstance. So when I first started with Omni seven years ago, I was a home-based therapist. So I worked with kids, teens, families. I did that for about a year and a half. And then just like randomly one day, they presented me with an opportunity to transfer over to our eating disorder clinic. Didn't really know what to expect. I had never really done that kind of work before, but I was really looking for something new. So transferred over here in 2016 and started off as a specialist. So I facilitated meal times. I did groups, monitored clients, all that kind of stuff. And later moved into um, therapist role and supervisor role and then director role. And, you know, what I really like about what I get to do is I sort of get to help on multiple different levels. So, you know, I get to work with the clients um, one-on-one in some aspects and on like a very direct care level, but I also get to work on a larger scale in terms of like implementing changes and developing policies and, you know, being able to offer this program to people who need it. Um, So I like that I get to do kind of that larger scale work as well, but, you know, getting into the field, I mean, I really quickly realized like, this is my thing. This is what I really love to do, what I'm interested in. I'm super interested in like the neurobiology of eating disorders and, and learning about, you know, why people do what they do in regard to their eating. And so that's really what's kept me in the field. Yeah. So you have obviously learned a lot. You've been in the field for six and a half years. So, well, first of all, can you just like tell people a little bit about what eating disorders are? Yes. So eating disorders, they're considered um, mental health conditions. So if you look in our diagnostic manual, they are a diagnosable disorder. And we would consider them physical and mental illnesses and because of the potential impact on your mental health and your physical health. And really eating disorders are characterized by a disturbance or impairment with your eating in terms of how we, you know, utilize food, how we consume it, what we do with it, our relationship with food. There's an impairment there that can lead to a whole variety of of different consequences for people. Yeah. So for like parents or, you know, parents have a big part in it, but also friends, like what are some things they can look for if someone is struggling with an eating disorder? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of 
signs and symptoms that can become or um, be kind of like specific to the disorder. But then there's a whole bunch of other more general signs and symptoms. And so I'm actually going to pull from the National Eating Disorders Association website. That's a resource that I point lots of people to because it's fabulous and super thorough. So in terms of emotional and behavioral, we'll start there. So you're going to see a whole bunch of preoccupation with weight, dieting, fat, carbs, in general, just like attitudes that seem to indicate that weight loss and food are primary concerns in somebody's life. You might see refusal to eat certain foods. So you might see individuals that cut out certain food groups or just won't eat particular things different food rituals. So, you know, if you're a family or a loved one and you're eating with somebody, you might notice sort of like oddities with their eating. So maybe they don't want food to touch or they're pushing their food around on, on their plate or they're taking really small bites, cutting their food up into really tiny pieces. Um, you could notice some of those things. I think a lot of times there can be withdrawal from family and friends. So you might just notice them pulling away or not wanting to talk or becoming irritable around food, becoming really anxious around food. Body checking behaviors. So you might notice somebody looking in the mirror a lot or weighing themselves a lot or, you know, using tape measures or checking, you know, various body parts and things like that. And then mood swings. So again, whether it's anxiety or depression or irritability, you're going to see some up and down swings there when it comes to food. Now, from a physical standpoint, there's also a whole bunch of different signs and symptoms that you could look for. It could be anything from, you know, dry and brittle nails, right? Your body is not getting the nutrition and the fuel that it needs. So it's starting to identify where it's not going to put its energy to anymore. And that means it doesn't need to take care of your nails. So nails get dry and brittle. Or it doesn't have enough fuel and energy to keep your hair. So thinning hair, hair loss, circulation can suffer. You might notice like really mottled skin, yellowing skin or poor dental health. Certainly you might see some fluctuations in weight. So, you know, for somebody who's restricting, you could see weight loss. But somebody who is maybe vomiting or binging or engaging in other behaviors, you may see some up and down weight fluctuations. I think though, you know, that list is non-exhaustive, first of all. But secondly, I think it's really important to point out that you actually may not see a lot of these symptoms. You know, in some cases you will, but I feel like a huge amount of the cases that we work with, you could look at them and not necessarily see these outward signs. And so I think there's a couple things to keep in mind here of one of the big misconceptions, of course, is that eating disorders have a look and you've got to look sick. You've got to be really thin. Um, you have to look ill, but that's not the case. The body is fabulous at adapting and it adapts to long-term eating disorder behavior. So you may not see these things on the outside and truly eating disorders don't have a look. You know, when you think about disorders, more like a typical anorexia, you have somebody who is absolutely restricting severely and losing weight and they're malnutritioned. And it doesn't matter if their weight's normal or even at a higher weight. It doesn't matter because your body can still be compromised. So I think that's one of the things I always make sure to tell people is, you know, you can be aware of these signs and symptoms and look carefully for them, but you may not see these things either. Yeah, for sure. And that's hard as like a parent or a close friend, you know, to either not see them and look back or, you know, things like that. So when they are aware of these behaviors, is there anything that they can do to help that person? 
Yeah, that's, and it's a good question. And I think it's a, a tough question too. You know, with eating disorders, there comes a lot of secrecy, a lot of shame about your behaviors and the things that you've been trying to keep from people. So it can be a really, really tough subject to broach with somebody. But I think in general, you know, if, if you're seeing a loved one with these behaviors, we do need to reach out to them and connect with them. You know, the individual may not always be receptive to our help or our message at first, but I think you've got to plant those seeds because you love this person, you care about them. I think in general, going about it in a calm way, in a non judgmental way, a non critical way is best case scenario because high emotions or anger or criticism, you know, that doesn't get somebody to change, especially not, you know, with an eating disorder. It's such a deeply ingrained thing sometimes. So, you know, calm, caring attitude, letting them know, you know, even if you're not ready to make changes yet, like I'm still here for you and I'm, I'm going to listen to you and I'm not going to tell you what to do right now, but I'm at least going to be here to listen to you. And I think you just keep trying to plant those seeds and really, really encourage them to get help. Yeah. And I think like patience goes along with that too. Like just being patient with the person because they will like maybe withdraw or, you know, go back and forth with these behaviors. And so really having patience with them. Yeah. It's almost like you kind of have to expect that there could be some resistance there and you have to accept that a little bit. You know, it can take some persuasion. But again, like the patience, like you mentioned, I think is so important to remember because it's it's just not a simple thing. You know, parents especially, like we want to fix things. We want, you know, to help our, our kids and we want to find those answers. But again, like kind of a misconception is just eat, just do this, just, you know, pick up your fork and take a bite. But it's not that simple, even as, you know, a parent, you want it to be, but it's just not. Um, these disorders are, are so much more than just simply wanting to lose weight or not liking food. You know, sometimes picking up a fork and taking a bite can be the hardest thing that you've done. So really recognizing, yeah, that patience piece. Yeah, for sure. And knowing like, nothing is a linear, like there will be some improvements and then there will be backslides and improvements and it, you know, it takes time. Yes. Yeah. I, that's so important. And I think it kind of like prefacing with that is important for parents or loved ones, just knowing like that's totally normal and it could be frustrating and it could be scary, but it's very normal. And that's really just how, you know, recovery goes for a lot of folks. Yeah. So with the individual that has the eating disorder, what are some specific tools that you teach? Yeah, so that's a great question. We do a lot of different things. You know, we do anything from meal logging, which might seem kind of like counterintuitive because there's a lot of fixation oftentimes on calories and, and measurements. But what we do with meal logging is we're actually looking more so for patterns. So we want to know when or if you're skipping meals or if you're binging you know, what's preceding the binge. We'll attach emotions and thoughts to it. So it's kind of like an expanded food log. So the emphasis isn't on counting calories or showing me nutritionally what you ate for breakfast. But really, again, I want to look for patterns with you to try to increase mindfulness of what you're doing. And we'll get more into mindfulness because it's such a huge part of this. But yeah, so meal logging, we work a lot on identifying triggers. So we can't just treat the behavior. We really need to know what developed this, what's maintaining it, what's contributing to the incidents happening or the behaviors happening. So we do a lot of exploration of the functions of behaviors. We do a whole bunch of skills work. So identifying coping skills, distress tolerance skills, all of those good things, because 
once you start identifying the functions and the triggers, the next step is really learning how do I deal with those things? And how do I deal with those things in a healthy way and not use my eating disorder anymore to help you do that? We will work a lot on incorporating just new parts, new things in life. You know, so a lot of times we'll have clients do kind of like a pie chart and we'll have them identify all the areas of their life and how much is the eating disorder taking up. And oftentimes it's, you know, very disproportionate. So we work with them on increasing the other pieces of the pie of their life and reincorporating things that maybe have gotten removed or that they've withdrawn from. You know, we work with them on exposure activities. So, you know, we really want to help them desensitize to the food-related anxiety, try new things, but also get them to trust themselves, get them to trust their mind and their bodies that they can eat these challenging things and be okay. You know, mindfulness is is a huge piece of what we do because in general, emotional avoidance is just a huge component of eating disorders. There's so many different things that go into why we have eating disorders, but I think emotional avoidance is one of those really big things. A lot of individuals who have eating disorders really struggle with like coping with and experiencing those emotions. And so we work a lot with them on sitting with those things and increasing their awareness of all of those really uncomfortable emotions. And again, learning to trust themselves that they can deal with those things. And so we'll do various mindfulness activities, whether it's at the table or again, mindfulness exercise with them, things like that, just to get them to tune in more so with themselves as opposed to blocking things out. And then I think you know, another large piece of what we do is the cognitive aspect. So again, we can't just change behaviors. I can't just have people come to our clinic and eat a meal because that's only the tip of the iceberg. We really have to look at what is underlying the behaviors. Many individuals with eating disorders, if you know, crack the case open, you'll find have many distorted beliefs about themselves or their body or food or their beliefs about you know, how their relationship with food should be. And so we really help them to start identifying those thoughts and then restructuring those, creating some new ideas, and then, you know, really discovering behaviors that align with those new thoughts. So we do a whole bunch of work. Yeah, it's very complicated, but it is such rewarding work. It is. Yes. And it's, it's just like such a cool thing to see kind of like the light bulb go off for the individuals that we work with. It's so cool to see them developing that insight and learning and like making those connections and then trying out these new skills and being successful with that. So that's a really cool thing. Yeah, for sure. Are there any other resources, whether it's, you know, online books, podcasts, anything that you recommend for clients? Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, the one that I always recommend people go to is the National Eating Disorders Association website. And I always recommend it because it's just so thorough. It's fantastic. There's so much information on it. I mean, if you go to National Eating Disorders Association um, website and click learn at the top, you can break it down by eating disorder. Um, You can learn about all the warning signs and symptoms that I talked about here. It's a really good resource, whether you're a therapist or a professional or a parent or a client. I feel like it, it really applies to everybody looking for information. So I always recommend people go there. Another really cool resource that I would recommend is called Recovery Box. 
And this one is important for a number of reasons, but one of the co-founders was actually one of our interns at our clinic. So I think that's really cool. She has gone on and founded this organization, and I'm going to use their words because they say it best, but their organization was founded to encourage a personalized creative and authentic approach to eating disorder and mental health recovery. And the website has all sorts of really cool like products and therapeutic tools on there, like planners and feelings wheels and putty and stickers and like just all sorts of stuff. Again, whether you're a professional and you want to use these with clients or you're a client. So it's just a really cool organization. They've done some really awesome things um, over the past couple of years. So I always want to point people to them too. That's really cool. Yeah. And then podcast wise, I was thinking about this, the one that I have on my list, at least to listen to, and this is another one that's kind of closer to home. So it's called You're Not That Special. And it's by Emily Estes, who is a uh, dietitian in Lincoln with Sage Nutrition. And she created this really, you know, it's focused on eating disorders and mental health and having conversations around those things. But the name is really about, you know, you're not that special, but you're not alone. So like, it might be kind of when you first hear that, you're like, what, what does that mean? But really it's, you're not alone with your struggles. You know, we've got anxiety. We all have these things and we can connect over these things. You know, you don't have to feel like you're fighting this battle on your own. So that's kind of been on my list to listen to. That sounds cool. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. So this question is not on our sheet. So I'm sorry for throwing a question at you. <laughs> but so the podcast is really about self-love and finding self-love in our struggles. And eating disorders is one of those. Like It's so hard to find self-love through an eating disorder. and so. How can people struggling with an eating disorder find self-love? Yeah, that is a good question. And it's a tough one. I mean, you're absolutely right. That notion of self-compassion and self-love is so tough sometimes for people with eating disorders. And we do a lot of work surrounding both of those things. I think it's, it's kind of two part, you know, again, you're working on that cognitive aspect. First of all, trying to figure out, you know, what are my beliefs about myself? How do I feel about myself? How do I place judgment on myself? What influences my self-esteem and my body image and just how I view who I am? And so we do a lot of discovery work with that. And then, you know, that heavy hard work after is really challenging those thoughts and restructuring those for some of these individuals, you've had these types of thoughts for a long, long time. Like this has been your narrative for a long time. And so really sort of untangling that, unpacking that and creating these new ideas about yourself. And um, that's really where the, you know, the heavy hard work comes in. But then you also have, you know, behaviorally, we work on, okay, so you're, you're creating these new thoughts about yourself, but now we need to identify behaviors and things for you to do that align with these thoughts. You know, so if you want to love yourself, if you want to feel better about yourself, then you should do things for yourself because you deserve it. Whether that's saying positive things about yourself or going out with a friend and doing something fun or painting your nails or, you know, doing some uh, movement that you just enjoy because it feels good. You know, whatever those things are, I think you really have to rework that narrative that says you don't deserve to love yourself, you know, and really start acting in accordance with how you want to view yourself. And so, yeah, it's, it's tough work. It takes a lot of time. It's a lot of rewriting 
what people have thought about themselves for a long time. Yeah, definitely a process. Yeah, for sure. Self-compassion. We actually recently did um, a couple groups on self-compassion and it's so necessary. It's just, it's such a tough, tough subject because there's just, you know, especially with some of the disorders, there's a lot of shame um, and there's a whole lot of judgment and a whole lot of just being really critical of yourself. And so, you know, we have a lot that we have to like kind of piece apart with people. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for being here. There was so much good information. Thank you for advocating for eating disorders. I think that we just need to put that awareness out there so more and more people learn about eating disorders. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I would leave you with too, you know, for somebody who's maybe struggling with an eating disorder and you're not really sure where to go, because that can be kind of confusing sometimes and you don't really know where to turn. But I think the biggest thing is to just push through the discomfort and speak up to anybody, honestly, whether it's your parents, your sister, your doctor, or if you're at the OB or you're at the dentist, you know, whatever. I think speaking up because there's strength in numbers and we can work together to get you the resources that you need. It's just, there's such a a hesitance to speaking up sometimes. So just talk to somebody and, and really push yourself to get that help. Yeah, for sure. That's so important. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here though. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to the Self-Love Revolution podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit selfloverevolutionpodcast.com for more resources. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for joining me, Ashley, in this episode of the Self-Love Revolution podcast. I'll see you next time.